if Jesus was like a last man, he would have mm-hmm. broke. Like he would have, he would have been arrested by the Romans. He would be snitching. Mm-hmm. He would have been like, you know, like I didn't do it. I didn't mean it. I'm sorry. Only right. because he was a higher man was he able to so successfully deny life. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Stephen Bertram Lee is back on the channel, this time officially in the uh, role of an uh, upcoming author. Your book will be coming out next year. It's called How to Stop Being a Teenage Nihilist. Um, and it, it's about uh, both your uh, intellectual uh, development and your decision to uh, go and join the Kurds in Rojava and, and fight ISIS. And so I want to fight. I want to start by asking you, um, what? How are these two concepts connected? The, your your overcoming of nihilism, your own personal rut of nihilism, and the struggle against ISIS. Yeah. So for me, kind of the path began in November 2014 with the siege of Kobani, which I was already kind of extremely far left at that point. Um, I was participating in like university far left groups, having to join the university the previous year. And I kind of saw the stuff that was happening in Kobani. This is when the siege of Kobani happened and it was mainstream news everywhere. Um, any normal person would have heard about, at least at that time, the siege of Kobani. Um, but obviously, as the culture I was in, I took it in a different way. And to me, it was a clear sign of kind of my 1936, my Spanish Revolution, the thing that kind of I'd anticipated and wanted appearing on the horizon. And so at that point, I was like, I'm going to go to Rojava, but first I'm going to finish my university degree. But then in between that point and the point I got to Rojava was almost three years. And in that time, while keeping this kind of lodestone and like single point as what I was going to do, which was go to Rojava, my politics changed. And my reasoning of why to go to Rojava altered, but it remained as a solid point of kind of a direction, a a place to go to uh, in my life, kind of politically as well as kind of physically, you know. Um, and so I, I was holding this point in my mind while becoming increasingly nihilistic and extreme in my politics and kind of, you know, strongly kind of, I'm not sure exactly the, the word to say, but like anti-populist in the sense of like, I had an increasingly low opinion of most people in terms of, which I think is very common. You'll see it very common in the far left and people won't even, it often goes uncritiqued that kind of most people are bad, they're kind of racist they're reactionary and, and, and so on and so forth. And kind of leftists will say like, I'm not going to support England at the world cup, even though I'm English because, mm-hmm. and that's kind of almost a default position, like to engage in this inversionism, mm-hmm. it's kind of inversionism of, of what is popular to basically take up the positions, which are the most unpopular. Mm-hmm. And this is something that had me quite strongly in, in, in a grasp in kind of 2016, 2017, um, you know, I was like an anarcho-nihilist or whatever. And luckily, I didn't become involved in very serious crime. Um, but I was involved in various things, of which I obviously won't detail on uh, YouTube.com. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, then in, in 2017, I, I went to Rojava w- with this kind of strong nihilist perspective, leaving the anarchist scene in Greece and Athens to Rojava, where I was thrown into a different world. Um, a world that was not kind of the anarchist scene in Greece or the, the far left scene in Britain, but was something that was completely different. It was a society having a revolution. It wasn't a scene. 
that's mm-hmm. something that's that's vitally important in, in what the difference was. I wasn't participating anymore in, in a scene, in a marginal group on the fringe of society. I was part of a revolution, and I was in the center of the society. I was part of the self-defense force of a popular revolution. I was part of, you know, one of these, you know, poor people's armies who derive their support from a mass popular base of very poor people. And that just threw me completely into a different world where my politics had to, were forced to, by the world around me to rapidly adapt to, instead of holding the people in kind of this poor regard, holding them in very high regard and being like, well, these people are like, (laughs) it's not like kind of, these people are even my equals. Like clearly these people are probably like (laughs) just better than me in various ways. And like just being incredibly impressed by uh, the people there who, including the other foreigners, that was another thing that kind of the foreigners I met there were like the people I'd met back home in various ways, but were clearly the best of the best in the, in this way. And so kind of me going, I was impressed in the sense of I'm among kind of the people that have made the right choice and the right choice with them is this very clearly pro-social mass politics based on kind of the, the desires and wants of, of the people. So I want to get to like uh, um, unspooling, unpacking all of what you just said, because I think there's a lot there that's, that might be of some use. And that's, I think, what the, your book is primarily about and trying to help people. You're trying to help people understand their own uh, leftist nihilism, I think. But I want to talk about ISIS. How did you conceive of ISIS um, before you left? And, and um, you know, comparing it to the Spanish Civil War and, and Franco and the fascists, uh, it, uh, it, uh, from my perspective in America, ISIS seemed like a very bizarre, small terrorist organization uh, of a kind of a springing out of a religious cult that would never have real prospects for any kind of national project. Um, did did you see them as a more consequential threat or having more of a chance at? at yeah, I mean that's that's one of the power? interesting interesting things that when I went there in 2017, I wasn't really concerned with ISIS at all. I mean, it was very nihilistic at that point, so it was kind of like, well, I'll fight whoever. <laughs> but really, I wasn't thinking much about ISIS. I was thinking about it, and I think that's a good thing. That showed I wasn't like all the way down the road of kind of nihilism, because I was there for Rojava, not for what it was against. Um, right. I was there for the positive of what they could do and what they could provide for me and what I could provide for them, instead mm-hmm. of thinking about it in negative terms, which is for the best. Um now I think about, I've, I've thought about ISIS a lot more since then. And to me, so obviously yeah, you, they are kind of bizarre and kind of fascinating in that way that they are trying to be incredibly reactionary, but obviously completely thrown in this like contemporary bourgeois world. Um, and so, you know, they were like doing stupid stuff like mil- minting golden coins as if they could return to like a like the gold standard, you know, like the fucking gold standard in one country or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, while at the same time, obviously being this, like an intensively like Twitter terrorist organization until they were kicked off of it. They were incredibly like active in social media and propagandizing to Westers, Westerners and were about kind of this very postmodern flow of getting people from all across the world attracted by kind of like online shock media into one place to then produce more kind of online shock media. And they had this very deliberate strategy of being unlike other jihadist groups who would take like a compromise line with say like, uh, you know, like Turkey or the United States or, or some kind of regional power to then like kind of have those at their back. And obviously all these like United States and Turkey was willing to, to cooperate with very brutal jihadis, but ISIS had a different tactic of kind of were going to be so against we're not going to compromise all and then we're going to become the most attractive group to everyone of the most extreme we are the, we're going to be the real jihadists who don't compromise and that'll attract loads of people and loads of support from from westerners from saudi arabia and from saudi arabia and the gulf countries meant just not like support from guys 
but support from serious people who had serious influences and ability to get them money and weapons and so on. Mm-hmm. And so they were the most extreme group, but this was something which served them a lot. I wrote in a, in a, in a, in, on Sublation Media in, in talking about Nazism in Ukraine, about how the USA watched a siege of an airbase in Syria, which was conducted on one side by the FSA, uh, the kind of free Syrian meant to be moderate uh, forces there, and on the other side by ISIS and the uh, Al-Qaeda. And the FSA guys were useless because they were just normal Syrian guys who were maybe involved in organized crime or they were just guys from the local area. And they weren't going to charge into a fucking Syrian airbase against massive, like technic, like tech, like uh, high tech fire. They were going to sit and wait and wait for these guys to starve to death or whatever. The ISIS guys and the Al Qaeda guys, they were going to go in there with fucking truck bombs, blow themselves up, and then send in waves of infantry who were committed to death to go and die to to destroy this place, and. That was kind of why ISIS was so successful because of kind of this commitment, this ability to get out of people, this will towards death um, through kind of religious precepts and through kind of like this intensive media campaign and like, you know, various kind of (laughs) postmodern modifications of of the Islamic creed, like with their immense focus on kind of the individual bourgeois idea of like focusing really on you're dying, but you're going to get like great rewards in heaven. Which really mm-hmm. personalizes it and like makes it into like a, almost like a business transaction. Mm-hmm. Well, I would think that that would be a good uh, way to win a, a, a short-term battle, but in a long, drawn-out war, if you're every you know every soldier is just charging in and getting mowed down, you are going to run out of troops. I mean, uh, I, I I don't know if that's sustainable. Was that a problem? Just te- technically, well, or practically. For I mean, eventually fighting? they switched to defensive fighting. Um, I know and they they were very good they weren't kind of they weren't true reactionaries in the sense of like you might expect from kind of like some dying Japanese samurai or whatever you know who mm-hmm. stuck rigidly to a particular tactic or whatever mm-hmm. they were very willing to adapt on the battlefield like during the Battle of Raqqa which I very distantly participated in mm-hmm. um, what they would do is they would take a position open fire on oncoming uh, Kurdish and other revolutionary forces and then immediately leave that position because they knew that American airstrikes or artillery were incoming in five to 10 minutes. And so they wouldn't, they, there was no particular position they held on Raqqa. Rather, they were just kind of flowing between buildings. And then when they spotted um, some encroaching forces, they would then take that building, set up positions, open fire, and immediately retreat and, and leave and flow somewhere else, you know? Mm-hmm. Huh. And what was the outcome? Uh, they, they they lost, but um, they they made lots of people die on the other side, and they also made uh, they they got the city absolutely destroyed. They they held held out for dogged months and months and months and months and months, and eventually some of their forces managed to get. They held out for so long that the Yepige made a deal to evacuate some of their forces to the southeast, where Yepige had to deal with them later. So, um. What comes to well, I'm going to ask you this: Do you think that uh, the as a nihilist in the UK, as a nihilistic leftist in the UK, the the part of the appeal of joining the Kurdish revolution was the fact that you would get to participate in violence? Uh, it was less about participation of violence, but I certainly wanted training for violence because it was uh, also like. It, I think is also very common, and I address it a lot in the book, is apocalyptic thinking, mm-hmm. where you take this nihilistic lineup and then you associate it and build it up with a line that kind of the world is also nihilistic and the world is going to collapse in some grand way, like with climate change or with various other things. And so kind of it wasn't for me going there to then like kill loads of people then, but to be ready for the uh, coming insurrection. Mm-hmm. As, okay. as and the that, movie titled. And, the, and that insurrection would be a collapse or an apocalypse and not in, in the worst sense of the word, rather than the beginning of a of a a transformation. Or did you think it was going to be transformative and have a positive? Well, I, I think at that kind of level of nihilistic politics, there isn't really a distinction between the two. 
there is kind of what needs to happen is a destruction of all that currently exists. And then from that springs out, is it meant to spring out, you know, the, the new pure world, you know, I think it's mm-hmm. quite kind of, it, you can take it along lines, which where it sounds very, you know, Christian apocalyptic or even kind of similar to what the Islamic state says. Right. In May of 68, there was a slogan, which went like this underneath the cobblestones, the beach. Right. And, um, and really underneath the cobblestones is the sewers. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, the, the idea was you rip up the, 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 the city and you'll find utopia. Um, you know, there'll be Bridget Bardot waiting for you. Yeah, I think that's the kind of perfect kind of negative politics that I want to critique and attack. Yeah, right. Um, all right, so let's step back out of the, out of the, conf- the violent conflict and into everyday normie lefty politics in Britain. You know, like, uh, um, how did you end up being attracted to the left? And then how did that drive you down the road towards um, being a, a leftist, a, a, a typical nihilistic leftist? And 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 I'll this just... Is, this is going to be dope, just making me tell my embarrassing stories. <laughs> well, do you think that it had something to do with your age? And particularly, um, I'll tell my own embarrassing... It's not that embarrassing a story, but it's very dated... Um, it's yeah. embarrassing and how it reveals how old I am, but everything I do reveals that now I can't help it. Just every move I make, <laughs> but, but, um, uh, when I was in my late teens, I think like maybe 19, uh, I remember being on a family trip around the holidays around this time of year to visit uh, an aunt and uncle in Tennessee and everyone was gathered together. Uh, and I, I started to realize that all of the people in my family were just dog shit. And <laughs> fuck, that's the bad way. <laughs> and um, that they couldn't make a decision about anything simple. So how could they possibly be running their lives? And something must else must be running it for them. And um, hey, this went made you a leftist. <laughs> right, <laughs> I was a leftist already uh, at right. nineteen, and. Um, and they all wanted to watch Pretty Woman on TV, so they all gathered around to watch Pretty Woman with Julia Rod- uh, Roberts, and uh, uh, and I uh, and Rich- what's the other guys? Richard Gere, and I-, I just felt just like this emptiness take over me, and I right. and I had to leave the room, and uh, I-, I think I went upstairs and read Noam Chomsky or something, you know? Wow, like- this is very kind of effective. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's just a memory I have of what I was like at the age of nineteen as an up and coming anarchist type. <laughs> did you, uh, have you did you hear the come town bit about the Richard Gear Museum? No, tell me about the Richard Gear Museum. <laughs> well, no, it's just kind of um, uh, Nick and uh, lies to Stavros that there's a Richard Gear Museum, and Stavros is incredibly credulous about it for fifteen minutes, even though Richard Gear is kind of like a very middling actor who couldn't possibly have a museum about him. <laughs> well, I think that to say that he's a middling actor. <laughs> Is he a man that have, would have a museum? Have you seen, uh, you know, looking for Mr. Goodbar <laughs> or, or or an officer and a gentleman? But, but Stavros defended himself being like, you know, my, I thought you just went one of those museums where it's just like a room, you know. It's like someone's loft right. in like Bushwick. Um, oh, right. Well, yeah, yeah. That That's what I thought, too. Uh, that's what I would think. You should replace the fat man on uh, TFSA. Yeah, okay. I, I'll be glad to. Whatever <laughs> send, in, send a memo in to people Nick. Wanna, <laughs> uh, people want to give me uh, where I just get to talk to a camera, I'll be too glad to do it. Um, well, my uh, conversion experience um, yeah. was first To the off, left. To the yeah. left, to becoming yeah. a leftist. <laughs> I can tell you my conversion experience becoming an atheist, but it's quite boring. Um yeah, I was kind of someone that was slowly catapulting myself through believing kind of every ideology in a way that's quite common to millennial Gen Z kids. I don't know if you've ever seen on Twitter someone that posts one of those like political compasses and it shows like every position they held within like a 12-month period and they've managed to almost like rotate around the compass in that time. <laughs> right. Um, and so I was... 
really into being like a neoliberal ANCAP when I was like 16. And I, I proceeded from kind of brutally, I joined the Liberal Democrats after they betrayed young people on, on student fees. Because mm. I thought that was based when I was, <laughs> when I was 15, 16. Um, but this, now, how did you come to take that position? Is that something that came out of uh, Reddit or? I think, or... well, I think it was due to actual political events. I think I was, I was impressed by Nick Clegg, but it was kind of online forum stuff and then kind of like wanting to take up like an edgy position, which is different from most people. Mm-hmm. Um, like we, I was on a forum, which was very dominated by kind of just very left of liberal people. We like made fun of them saying like, you know, everyone just wanted generic, nice things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I kind of catapulted through kind of neoliberalism into like libertarianism, into like ANCAPism. And then when I got to ANCAP, mm-hmm. and obviously being an ANCAP doesn't make any fucking sense, right? So it was quite easy for, to be convinced otherwise. And I saw a quote, which was like, the law in its maj- majestic equality uh, refuses the right of both the homeless and millionaires to sleep under bridges. And I was like, fuck, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, fuck, this ANCAP shit doesn't make any fucking sense. And then kind of I slowly rotated around the, the compass until becoming uh, like some kind of socialist, like left anarchist or whatever. But I would have kept rotating. But events in my life conspired to make sure I didn't. Um, I had like a Trotskyite politics teacher um, in in high school, and he showed us the Beta Meinhof complex mm. about the Red Army faction in Germany. Mm-hmm. And I watched that, and I came out of that, and I was like, "Wow, this is this is the real shit." And I think that's really funny because maybe people of your age, Doug, and this is very like body odd or whatever, would be inspired by the actual RAF. But I was just inspired by a spectacular spectacular image of the RAF produced by kind of like mainstream media to make this film, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of this spectacular image, which was meant to be about why the RAF are so bad. And this is probably like a really bad way to start becoming like a real leftist. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the spectacular image of this kind of guerrilla group getting basically like made into like idiots by this mm-hmm. film. That really mm-hmm. attracted me to, to properly become solidly a leftist and to stop rotating around the political compass at the time if first of all i'm too old to have been attracted to that group like i mean i'm too young i'm too young to okay okay i was gonna say i'm I'm, I'm not old enough yeah yeah um because when did they when did they form well they were kind of like in they were doing like they came to the apogee and kind of they had their mass collapse and suicide murders or whatever in the late 70s yeah, right. So I would have been, you know, six, You'd seven, been like eight. eight. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like you were around, but you were like an actual child. Yeah, right. So I, I wouldn't have been attracted to them then. But if I were to have been old enough then to um, to have been attracted to them, it would have been through because of the media coverage. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah, have. I, you know, I would have watched them. Yeah, like it's just a different spectacular image, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There would never, never have been a way to get to the real. Yeah. Uh, thing. I mean, yeah, maybe I could have picked music up a movies pamphlet. are basically the same thing anyway, right? <laughs> well, no, no, I'm not being ironic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, more and more, I think so. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, okay, I think so, I, I think I slip a line in the book of like, you know, is it not that the news more and more each day resembles Marvel movies, and is it not that Marvel movies more and more each day resemble the news? Oh, Marvel movies, even. My God, <laughs> that's, that's a real indictment. Um, uh, well, okay, so you you uh, you saw this film about the the RAF, and 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 you thought, I want to be a guy who blows himself up in a car for no reason. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to engage in like terrorism and kill like one guy and get put in prison for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So what was what were you thinking when you after that that may, what was attractive about that? Was it that they were being vilified by people you hated, or was it something else? They were just fucking cool. They were just doing fucking crimes and they were killing people and they like were attractive and hot. 
And they were oh, young. Okay. And they were cool. They're having sex. They look good on camera. They yeah, I don't think I really like the sex stuff. I remember, yeah. I think that, the, the I was kind of embarrassed for them when they did that bullshit in Lebanon in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was one bit which didn't attract me, which was kind of the, the free love nakedness among kind of the revolutionary factions of the Middle East. Um, but the rest of the stuff, yeah, like they were kind of, yeah, they were willing to fight and die and they were like serious, you know. So what they was like it about, about that? Does that just strike you as misogynistic or something? The, the free love that? stuff? Yeah. Well, it just kind of seemed like, I don't know, like I had, I didn't have the language of that at the time, but it seemed cringe, you know, that they had been invited in by these people. I think I always kept like an attitude of gratitude. They had been invited in by these people to be trained and so on by them. And then they just completely did something else. And I think that was an important attitude that I had when I went to Rojava, where even though I had really different ideas, I was like, well, I'm in your place doing your shit. So I'm going to try and do things to your, in your way as much as I can. Um, and then oh, eventually... so, uh, I see. Was there unwillingness to abide by the code yeah. uh, that they were being put with? And then eventually me, than, me it wasn't follow- that you were thinking that, Oh my God! Why are they having sex like that? You know, <laughs> no, like they, yeah, they weren't like... they weren't willing to to follow the rules, and I was willing to follow the rules, which is a bit strange. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of because I like participated in like a voluntary like that was the thing for me that I had volunteered for this, and so while I volunteered for this, I should follow the rules, and then eventually following the rules with a different politics eventually just led to me following the rules because I thought they were right, which I think is inevitable when you're kind of thrown into things that much. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's talk about what you think nihilism is and where it comes from. Um, I think nihilism actually is the defining ideology of. Well, I think that there are two levels to our ideological lives, like the ideologies that guide us through life. I think there's the personal. Uh, level, the kind of day-to-day interactions that people have, the the things they value in their local, you know, community or in their family or with amongst friends. And I don't think people are nihilists at that level for the most part. Yeah. And then, but I think that when it comes to uh, thinking about the overall global situation or the, even the um, politics, that people become nihilists. Um, and and all, all, also. There's a certain kind of nihilism which seems attractive because it's akin to moral relativism, mm. which has a, a, a veneer of progressivism uh, about it. Um, so I think that kind of progressive moral nihilism, um, the culture that comes along with the cultural relativism, um, is pretty pervasive and it kind of defines a lot of, uh, especially elite thinking. Yeah. Um, and uh, did you? Did you have hold with that kind of nihilism, the culturally this cultural relativism and the progressive? Do you think you picked it up from the general culture, from those normies that you despised? I, I think for me, a lot of what kind of really inspired me to write this book is reading Nietzsche and reading his kind of ideas about nihilism, about his ideas of the last man, and being like, I see these cunts on Reddit every day. I see people just like he described 150 years ago, constantly everywhere. I mean, I have, I've read some Nietzsche, but what I've mostly read is the genealogy of morals. Um, I'm not sure if the bit about the last man is in there, Uh, but, but describe what, what does Nietzsche mean by the last man? So the last man is someone who wants pleasure, but not too much. He doesn't want to argue. He doesn't want to debate. He doesn't want to do anything important. He just kind of wants to go through life contentedly. He wants enough food to fill his belly, but not enough food that he might get indigestion. He wants to sleep. He wants to have a little bit of narcotics before he goes to sleep, but not too much. And he wants to sleep and sleep for the right amount of time and wake up in the morning and do a little bit of work, and da 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 And there's no history for this man. There's no going anywhere. There's no grand project. There's just, that is. And the, the problem that I see online is that 
it's not just that people are last men. I shouldn't, some, some of them are last men. But the problem is for many people, what I've described there is like an aspirational idea. And what they actually have is, is worse than that, or they think it's worse than that. That mm. instead of having this contented life of the last man, what I read on these forums is not people saying like, I'm a last man, like well, what's so bad about it? It's like, I want to be like the last man, but I'm not even there, you know? I, so I they, don't, they, don't, have, they don't use that phrase, do they? They don't say, I want to be well, the last man. In, in, on these ask philosophy, people will actually say that. They will directly say like, no. I would like to be the last man. Like, what's wrong with it? Like, what's Nietzsche's problem with it? Mm. Um, but also kind of Nietzsche's, what's important for me is kind of Nietzsche's idea of nihilism as life denial. And then on the other hand, the idea of life affirmation. Well, there's basically two ways you can go about life, either denying life, which expresses itself in Christianity, in the desire for another world, where you live mm. for another world. And that's the same thing going on with the Islamic State. Mm -hmm. um, where life denial functions not in a total denial of life, but living for another world, another life, which is obviously it's nihilistic because they're wrong. <laughs> like if, if the Christian was correct that heaven existed, or if the Islamic State fighter was correct that they were going to heaven, they wouldn't be nihilist, or maybe they would, but it would be in a totally different way. But the problem is they're, they're mistaken. They're mistaken about this being this other world. And so for Nietzsche, they're fighting, they're... they're angling towards nothing, pure nothing, because they're fighting what? for a world which doesn't exist. One of the, the problem, problems... Go ahead. But the problem for that I see now online is people are not doing life to now in that way. They're just doing straight life to now with antinatalists um, mm. and this, this smaller group, which I keep having... When I first wrote the book a couple of years ago, uh, maybe 18 months ago, you know, I said, like, this very small group on Reddit with, like, 1,000 followers. And now it's like I have to edit that each time I, like, go back to the text because now they have 12, 15,000 followers who are called pro-mortalists who are directly just, like, we want to die. We want everyone to die because the world is, in, is a net negative. And so it's kind of this progressive for this, this, this new apogee of life to now, just saying, like, yeah, life's bad. Let's end it. Let's get rid of it. That's it. Mm -hmm. completely straightforward and that's i think kind of <laughs> and that's quite last money in that there's not kind of this ideology or this grand project it's just kind of like life shit just let me die euthanize me euthanize everyone mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know um i have two thoughts and i'm gonna talk about the heaven idea or the, you know the afterlife the problem with the afterlife or heaven for me is that uh, you, it, it's posited as a perfection and therefore an, as an unchanging place. Mm. It's not communism. <laughs> <laughs> well, communism isn't unchanging. I don't think communism is changing, uh, unchanging. Um, but there's a Talking Heads song that's called Heaven, and it, it talks about how everything stays the same in heaven. And, um, uh, and the other thing about that is that everyone's going to be there from all these different eras. Right. So, like, I wonder, would we really get along? But um, it, would, it would be a really <laughs> alien world. Yeah. Right. Especially um, if all the dogs are there. Yeah, all those freaking dogs, all the Maybe. cockroaches. And remember, because like for each like each human generation, you get like ten dog generations. So we're going to be horribly outnumbered in heaven. This is why we have to segregate. Uh, there's dog <laughs> heaven. There's cat heaven. There's cockroach heaven. Um. Okay. So <laughs> it's ridiculous. But uh, the idea of um, the, the other thing that, that you said, this, okay, this pro-mortalist uh, perspective, um, I, I thought suddenly of Peter Singer, you know, the, the yeah. hedonist utilitarian philosopher yeah. who uh, takes these positions in a, in, a, in a way that can be easily caricatured just by stating them uh, bluntly. Like, for instance, uh, it's okay – it's not right to eat animals because of utility. His utilitarian ethics says you cannot eat, kill and eat an animal, but it's fine um, if you want to have sex with them. Yeah. That's okay. That's okay. And in, uh, in some circumstances, because in some circumstances he still thinks it's permissible to kill animals, he still thinks it's permissible to kill infants. Right. No, it's permissible to kill animals in some circumstances. And he certainly does think it's uh, permissible to kill infants as well, just as you said. 
um, especially if they are developmentally uh, disabled, if they have uh, severe um, birth defects, and 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 especially if their uh, cognitive capacities are severely diminished. Diminished, it's fine to to get rid yeah. of them after after they're born. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he's not particularly well loved by many, but I kind of admire him because he has his ethos, his, his understanding, his philosophy, and you know, regardless of uh, the you know the consequences socially and breaking of uh, the the often inconsistent uh, morality of of his culture, he. Yeah holds true. Um, but it also seems to me that it could be, uh, that a lot hinges on how you do the calculus of, of pleasure. Right. And, and that the, the pro death camp has an argument, which is, you know, the amount of pain in the world is just always going to be greater than the amount of pleasure. And therefore, um, we, you know, we should all die, and that would be the yeah. simplest, best thing. Um, and uh, you know, I think that that, from from my perspective, that shows a limit to hedonism, which is a, I think the ethos that really is the ethical system of the last man. Also, hedonism. Yeah, I mean, definitely, but hedonism, kind of like a moderate hedonism. The, the last man is like a moderate hedonist. He's not. He's never Dionysian in kind of like having a Bacchiel kind of grand search for pleasure, right? Right. Like, you know, well, he's because, not, But you want to maximize your pleasure, which means moderating it. Yeah, and but he's, you know, he's never going to... He's just going to reach for the chocolate on the dressing table, you know? He, he's right. not going to go to the shop to buy the better one when it's cold outside, you know? Right, of course not. Well, I mean, you'll make the calculus, make the calculation. Uh, but, but yeah, you know, you're right that definitely a lot of this pro-death stuff, direct life denial, is, is based on either positing an evidential asymmetry between pleasure and pain in the world, as in to say there's a lot more pain than pleasure in the world, and thus we should end the world, or to engage in negative utilitarianism, which is positing that there is an, in, an like kind of an inherent asymmetry between pleasure and pain, that we should be more concerned with pain than we should be pleasure. And in that world, like negative utilitarianism was an idea that philosophers tried out, but they basically abandoned because it didn't seem to lead anywhere. But the idea of a, a benevolent world destroyer who would click his fingers and destroy the world, and he would be the best person ever. He should, that's the right thing to do. Um, and obviously, the, the thing is with depressed young people online is that if there's a bullet to bite, people will bite it. And so this idea which died out among philosophers because it obviously leads to a position where you kill everyone just leads them saying, well, let's fucking kill everyone then. Right. And, and then, you know, you, you have someone who um, might be aware of uh, Freud uh, and they would come along and look at that and go, you know, maybe all this window dressing about utilitarian ethics is just a cover for <laughs> the death drive, the death drive and the <laughs> desire for destruction. Um, so, yeah, the last man. Well, the other thing that uh, strikes me about the last man is that um, that it is kind of how mid twentieth century Marxists and leftists saw the working class. <clears throat> it's what people like Theodore Adorno worried about, you know, Americans particularly becoming. Yeah, are these these, but which is interesting because it's not the worry now, right? The worry now is that they're all like they're about to do fascism. Give them an excuse. Well, the last man in fascism, though, is not that disconnected. Well, uh, I mean, the, in, the, in last, the last man would live in fascism, but he would never implement fascism, right? Right. Well, the um, yeah, I, I need to think about this a bit more. The the last man who just simply wants to go to work and have his private little life um, of simple, small moderate hedonistic pleasures um, might very well also find himself uh, investing in an authoritarian. Uh, right. Because politics is like something which causes you indigestion. 
so it should be left right. to the side. Right, right. I need to re- think about what Adorno, because Adorno also, and guys like Wilhelm Reich, who... Yeah, I mean, I, I said that thing about fascism, and then I was like, you just, talk, that's obviously fucking wrong. Like, of course Adorno was 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 concerned about, like, the totalitarian <laughs> fascism. What the fuck right, am right. I saying? Right, right, right. <laughs> but it wasn't because he, it wasn't his Nietzschean, whatever influence Nietzsche had on him, it was the Freudian. Yeah. Uh, side of his uh thinking that embraced that so he he would look past the hedonism and and get to these inner drives and things like that yeah. uh, um but so do, let's talk about let's go back to your your per- personal story um do you think i mean uh funnily enough i don't really have a good idea of what it's like to try to come of age without becoming a leftist like I don't like. How do you individuate? I can't. Um, I can't ask Nathan because the same thing happened to him. Right. I mean, but but do you do you think that you becoming a, a radical leftist was a way to individuate from your family, find your own identity, try to make your way, you know, come of age in in, in society? Was that really what you were doing? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess it, 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 I had contemporary drives like for instance i chose to go to essex university because it was far away from where my home was like i wanted to move out in kind of like a a dramatic way but i don't think the the funny thing is because i come from an area which is very leftist well not very leftist but like very social democratic completely labor party parents both always labor party the rebellion for me was the liberal democrat neoliberal stuff and oh, then the, right. the, the journey to, to the left was more of a journey home. Oh, um, okay. Though when I went to university, it then kind of turned towards this aggressive kind of anti-British sentiment. Uh, but I think that was kind of contact with, with foreigners, which, which caused that. The first time really in my life I'd met foreigners, which shows how parochial a place I grew up in. <laughs> right. And what did your parents think of you becoming an ANCAP neoliberal? And then also, what did they think of your return home? Or did you um, talk about it with them? I think my mom was glad that I was kind of engaged by anything that wasn't like playing video games on my computer. Mm-hmm. So like when I worked for, like I did like work experience with like the Liberal Democrat office, she was like very happy I'd done that and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like, I, I mean, I just kind of, I didn't speak to my parents about politics. Like I kind of kept it all quite close to my chest um, and just didn't really talk about that kind of stuff. Like I never, like my, I see my aunt a lot and I was just having to explain to her today, like kind of what the point of my book is, you know, mm-hmm. but like to, to people who aren't leftists, I don't talk about leftist stuff basically. Right. Um, and uh do you think that this problem of nihilism crosses ideological boundaries, but you know, or is it mostly on the left? Do you think that it's on the right? No, no I think, I, I think it completely is. I think that's the, I, I talked about this a bit with Philip Cunliffe on um, Bunga Bunga. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a thesis that ISIS are com- like kind of complete nihilists. And he was asking me whether I thought the people who, who went to, to join the Islamic state were nihilists. And I said, I think they are a relatively kind of similar sort of person to who I was in that they're trying people who, and, and other people who went to Rojava in that they're trying to like seek an escape from nihilism from a, a culture where they're kind of just thrown into the world. this disconnected life. They're looking for a, a life which makes sense, which has a grand project behind it. But just because they're trying to flee from nihilism doesn't mean that they can't arrive at their destination of, of nihilism anyway, and that um, ISIS and being directly le- life-denying, doing the most kind of explicit and straightforward nihilism of, of mm-hmm. life denial through their embracement of massive suicide bombings, large-scale, very frequent. No organization in history has ever embraced suicide bombing as much as the Islamic State did. Are kind of one of the most... And also in kind of really perfected the form of terrorism for the sake of just mass killing like even with al-qaeda al-qaeda obviously killed thousands of people on 9-11 but blowing up the building was important Mm -hmm. or even more important than killing the people right Mm -hmm. um for isis 
in their like they did big massacres in France, but they didn't destroy anything about France, anything important about France, uh, any kind of big symbols. They didn't blow up the Arc de Triomphe. They didn't blow up churches. They didn't do anything like that. They just killed people. They went into that theater and they didn't even destroy the theater, you know. They just killed the people in there. They killed hundreds and hundreds of people, but they didn't, they wouldn't dare destroy. <laughs> like, I'm sure they barely did any capital damage at all. The Islamic State compared to Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda loved to blow up big, important buildings. The Islamic State just killed. And then they, and you know, it was, they were the ones, I don't think Al Qaeda back in those days, they wouldn't give their guys suicide vests. But mm-hmm. every Islamic State guy who went out to kill would also be wearing a suicide vest. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it was this complete dedication to death. Um, this, this why did they? Why didn't they want to destroy the symbols as well as the real the people? Why didn't they want to blow up the theater? Because um, I think they weren't really trying to. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Um, but I think it's something to do with kind of Al Qaeda were trying to. Al Qaeda were trying to kind of impress the general population. I think. Mm-hmm. like everyone mm-hmm. while and you know al-qaeda get really frustrated that people don't believe they knock down the towers because especially in the middle east the majority of people don't believe it and it mm-hmm. really frustrates al-qaeda because it was obviously their biggest operation the most successful operation mm-hmm. and, and most people in the middle east are, are conspiracy theorists who don't believe like obviously you know <laughs> uh, the truth of 9-11 who knows but al-qaeda was definitely involved <laughs> they played <laughs> right. a big role in it regardless of what the actual truth of the matter is um, but mm-hmm. most people in the Middle East don't believe it was just the Americans doing it themselves in like a very direct way. And that really frustrates Al-Qaeda. Um, but I think ISIS were real, like actual terrorists. Like they wanted to rule by terror. And the people they were looking to impress were kind of a small minority of people who would come like, you know, this kind of, um, as kind of communist movements degenerated, like in the 60s mm-hmm. and the 70s, they started to be this form of communist party that weren't even really trying to have a mass base. They was rather like they were just weak and lead through kind of a small group of individuals who were doing like massive terror and, and bombings and attacks. And we can kind of just bring down the state. I think ISIS are much more in that mold. While Al-Qaeda were the more traditional kind of like, we're going to impress the people. We're going to take over countries. Uh, through like a large and we're going to be supported by the people while the islamic state were more like we're actual we're, we're terrorists <laughs> yeah, we're going to rule it within this our own state by yeah and and they were completely brutal like internally and also like for instance al-qaeda <laughs> i'm being quite pro al-qaeda al-qaeda also that weren't that intersectarian stuff um mm-hmm. so they weren't really into about purging of the muslims while the islamic state slaughtered muslims um any kind of like Shia or any kind of like weird sects, they would just fucking go through them too. So they were kind of brute, like a brutally purging group leading through terror, like constantly killing people within their own territories, brutally punishing people with hand uh, removal of limbs and all this kind of stuff. Um, like real, like ISIS is a bit like, it's like, are they just oh, like, did they think like, aren't we the bad guys? <laughs> they didn't they they i don't know it's good do you remember that uh the, there's a comedy skit from yeah yeah <laughs> i was referring to that yeah 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 <laughs> okay so listen we're we're about well, at, at 47 minutes in i want to break here we don't actually have to really break but i want to put a mark here and say that from this point on it's going to be for patrons and we'll continue talking about nihilism can i and can maybe, i can i do yeah. like a, co- a couple of minutes on Yepigay is is life affirming as opposed to life denial of ISIS. You want to do that before you go before we go to the Patreon? Yeah, just for like two minutes and then yeah, elaborate yeah. on it. All right, okay. So I don't know if Doug, if you know this, if I ever told you, but um, Yepigay like used to have a the Yepigay and PK and so on. They used to have the slogan of Sekeften. Uh, sorry, I can't actually remember the question. Uh, it's like there used to be victory or death. Mm-hmm. which is, I think, quite common. Like, when you woke up in the morning, you would go and you'd get your announcements, and then at the end, you'd all chant, victory or death. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, uh, Nietzsche, uh, sorry, uh, Ultraland, the leader of the Kurdish Freedom Movement, who was influenced by Nietzsche, decided this was too life-denying, and he changed it from victory or death to victory or victory, mm-hmm. um, to Sinkeften and Sinkeften. And 
also the slogan which came out of the PKK in the 90s, it's as part of the ideological transformation was women, life, freedom. So they're very kind of straightforward about their wanting to be like a life affirming movement. And this is kind of in, in the direct contrast to the Islamic State. But I think is very interesting, and we can talk about it on the, the Patreon bit, mm-hmm. is the PKK, while they don't really do them anymore, they, while having this officially life-affirming perspective, were one of two secular organizations who've ever done suicide bombings. Mm-hmm. They never did them at a big scale, but they would. it was kind of like a tool in their arsenal that they would engage in. And they come from a culture like it was like... So immolation, self-immolation is still very common in, in, in Kurdistan. Mm. And there was a big thing in the 90s after Ochlan was captured of women self-immolating mm. um, as kind of like a form of protest or whatever. But as, as kind of the first year it happened in the year and the, the year Ochlan was captured, the PKK didn't really do anything about it. The next year, kind of more women were immolating. And then after that, the PKK really started to, to crack down on it and they really tried to stop this from happening. Um, mm. they tried to kind of break this and eventually this might not sound that major to Western ears um, but they eventually stopped calling these women martyrs basically saying that you've you've died for nothing here. I think that was kind of like an important de- de- decisive turn in their own internal culture towards this towards a form of, of, of life affirmation where you're fighting, you're completely willing to die but you're not going to kind of will towards death and their kind of slogan is, you know, we love life so much that we're willing to die for it. And which obviously people have to be willing to die for it mm-hmm. if we are ever to really affirm life. And that's where we break from kind of the Nietzsche, we should break from the Nietzschean perspective. Because Nietzsche imagined that we could affirm life alone. But obviously, as, as socialists, as communists, we, we need to realize that we can't affirm life by ourselves. We're thrown into this world, into these, these structures where the possibility of life affirmation is basically like maybe randomly you'll be able to do it, but probably you won't be for, for reasons that kind of your, outside of your control. And the only way you'll be able to do that is by engaging collectively to try and force a world where people can affirm life. We're, now we're going to start talking about um, how to self-immolate uh, for the parrot, <laughs> uh, parrot room, the Patreon. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.